0: Hello, everyone. This interview was recorded on February 21st, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jeff Nikolov. Based in Phoenix, Jeff is a software engineer and an author who has extensive experience building and writing about large-scale technology services. He's also the co-founder of Topple, a team-focused consulting, training, and mentorship company. You can follow him on Twitter at AllInGeek, and check out his website at AllInGeek.com, and you can find Topple at GoTopple.com, along with co-author Stephen Kinsley Jeff is the author of the Manning Publications book, Docker in Action, Second Edition. In this best-selling book, you'll learn everything you need to know about creating, deploying, and managing, managing Docker containers and techniques applicable all the way from smaller environments up to big, full-scale cloud deployments. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jeff's background and career, professional interests, and his book. So thank you, Jeff, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software
1: sure um so i grew up in portland oregon in the 90s um but we got my we got our first computer we were very lucky we got our first computer um from my father's work it's a business machine it was this old uh ibm business partner was the brand it was some 286 or something like that uh no hard drive just dual big old floppy disks and uh it was it was pretty magic very early um I like to talk about inspiration all the time. For me, like one of my favorite movies as a kid was uh, *Explorers*, had River Phoenix in it, and um, they, like computers were tangentially uh, into it. But I was kind of always into science and, and geeky stuff like that, um, which was really awesome. Um, but then, um, pretty like in, in middle school, we got a we got the the Pentium uh, 90, Pentium 90 machine, right? The, the the first big classic. uh uh, killer and um just kind of really it was just this raw machine right it was just windows 3.1 with kind of like whatever ast was the manufacturer had put on it and and whatever we had whatever software was kind of available on the big table at costco um but like it was just so much mystery and kind of like uh, but i really didn't have a whole lot of mentorship Um, There weren't a whole lot of resources around, which is kind of weird considering I was in the Silicon Forest and and all of that. Um, But, you know, I kind of like took inspiration where I could, um, got into uh, like a whole bunch of other people like modding Doom 2 um got into would would just go to like the bookstore. Uh back in the day, like the bookstore actually had a, a nice you know uh a, a variety of of books in the computer section. So it was kind of like kind of like cut my teeth that way. I think I bought like a Java swing book uh at randomly um did a little bit of C plus plus a lot of like scripting just a ton of scripting and then um and then got way into um, building uh, HTML and CSS really, really early. Um, then was just hacking more in high school. Did a, a self-directed study on C++, um, and then went to ASU, got into their CS program, and went through that whole went through that whole thing. But I was always kind of like a tinker. Like I it was never had a really hard time like focusing on one subject and just like crushing it. Um, usually because like courses just always take so long schools that are on semesters are like 16 weeks long and so like that's just it never moves fast enough to keep me interested. Um, and so like I took a job, I got a job in IT at ASU, um, that wasn't my first IT job but it was probably my, my most significant uh, early, early employment um, but it was really great because I got this, this crazy deep exposure to a wide range of technologies. And like really, for the first time, it was it was where I had like this group of young adults who were really they were much more experienced and they gave that mentorship. Um, and so like with a little bit of that like positive example and a little bit of that like well have you tried X Y Z even if I had never heard of X Y Z before it was enough to get me like into it. And that's kind of like when I hit my really crazy growth spike when it came to my professional skill set.
0: I've got, I've got a question about that. Um, uh, so ASU is Arizona state university. Yeah. So yeah. You, sorry. You moved from Oregon to, to Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I gather you've stayed there, uh, ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty and, much. And, uh, and so you studied computer science and the, 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 question I, I always like to ask people who studied computer science, uh, who I interview on this podcast is, um, if you were starting out again, now, would you do a formal university computer science degree?
1: Um, yes, I, I I would absolutely. Um, in fact, towards the end of my college education, I actually discovered how to study for the first time. Um, and so there was a lot of like kicking myself in the butt. Um, I was like, well, if I had studied this hard since middle school, you know, things would have probably been very different, but yeah, no, I, I do, but it really depends on like what you want for me what I want is I'm just really into knowing as much as I can like for me like employment is like compensation is second to learning um when it comes to like where I get my fulfillment from um and so the for me yeah like I don't think I would have ever been satisfied without it but it certainly is not something you absolutely need these days so
0: and, uh, and and you work, you you worked for ASU, think, mm-hmm. as you as you were just explaining, and then and then you moved on, um, and you ended up working for a company that uh, many people are familiar with, um, uh, called Amazon. And I wanted to ask you about that. What was what was that like? And what I love it. What did you do for them?
1: Um, I was a software engineer. Um, I came in as a not not a. It, like their their levels don't really translate. I came in as a software engineer. Um, it was great because I was in Phoenix. They opened a little dev shop in Phoenix. Um, I think I was the fifth person in the office. Um, and but for the first time, you know, like I was saying, like at ASU, I got like this this handful of people who were technically significantly more mature than I was, and it was enough to really like throw gas on the fire. Um, but when I went to Amazon, the people that I was working with were like they just raised the bar for me in so many different ways, and it was really like the first six months of working there was like getting another four-year degree worth of learning. Um, it was just kind of crazy, so I just ate it up. Um, I loved it.
0: It's it's uh, really interesting. You mentioned on your on your website allengage.com that you you live the leadership principles. Mm-hmm. at Amazon. And I'd heard about them before, and I checked them out. And I, you know, I mean, I think most people are sort of um, skeptical of corporate speak. And, you know, yeah. these are our five points and stuff. Like that. But um, with the exception of leaders are often right, <laughs> uh, or leaders are right a lot. Uh, personally, um, I, I, when I read them, I was like, you know, and I'd heard, like I said, I'd heard about them before, but like, they're extremely reasonable. And yeah, yeah. That, you, you, you get a, get a, an impression of one of the reasons it's such a successful company at, at doing what it does.
1: Well, I think that the really, for me the, the, secret of Amazon is that they're probably the best managed company in the world. Um, and you know, so it's like the, the, the corporate speak is kind of one, one thing that's really easy to pick at. Like you see a document like this for a lot of companies and you're just like, sure, sounds great. Right. But, but I mean, I mean in Amazon, like this is that document is your, is your, your review criteria. This is: Are you doing your job? Like, are you, are you being an Amazonian? Um, are you like, should I be promoted? I don't know. Like, are you a leader? Like, what's the scope, the the, the scope and and impact of your leadership? Um, and that's they, they they do a really really good interest or a really good job at Amazon, more so than any company I've, I've worked with or really kind of like taken a look at in the past, of aligning everybody's interests very carefully. Um, As an engineer, your interests are aligned with your customer's interests. As a manager, your interests are aligned with your engineer's interests, are aligned with your customer's interests, all the way down, all the way up through management. Um, And that manifests in a lot of ways, some of which are um, very positive and some of which are particularly uncomfortable for people who are not used to feeling customer pain directly. Um, So like, you know, everybody's on call. I mean, your your director is on call for the software that you write. Um, and so if the software you write is of poor quality and it's creating poor customer experiences, then then you're going to feel that pain. And unfortunately, at Amazon scale, uh, if, if if there's a little bit of customer pain for each individual customer, you're experiencing that times a million. Um, and so it really, you know, it, anyway, so there's, they, they put these systems in place and they really do seem to to use that as kind of like their North star and they manage to them. And I think it works pretty well.
0: And do you, uh, do you have a fair amount of autonomy or, or, or sort of um, empowerment compared to other companies? Cause I, one of the, one of their um, statements uh, on these leadership principles is ownership and it says leaders are owners. Um, and I think, you know, from a kind of old timey perspective, you might read that and go, Oh shit. That means I'm, you know, shit flows downhill. Right. But, right, but okay. actually I of course read that to mean, like you've got you've got authority yeah
1: i mean i and i can't i can't speak for every
0: org right like everybody's experience there is different they're a major major
1: employer so like my you know like this is all anecdotal um but in my experience and from what i've seen like especially like they actually flow ownership helps things actually flow up um rather than down it isn't about like you you couldn't say that if there was like a there's a something that's flowing down deal with it they had I don't know if it's still on the website but they, they had a, a leadership principle that was disagree and commit um where you're empowered to disagree um but ultimately like you're willing to commit to the group consensus direction um they with with regard to autonomy um it's <sighs> autonomy is a really, really difficult or really interesting thing to talk about. And I think it really does come down to the team that you find yourself on or the org that you're in. Um, a lot of times you give them very specific missions and, and, uh, but one thing that they do probably better at Amazon than any other place on the planet is they, they're really, really skilled at leveraging like group critical thought. Um, so everybody really does, you know, if you have insight into a problem and potential solutions, you're, you're not only welcome to share it, you're compelled to share it because at the end of the day, everyone involved is as culpable for the success or failure for that project as anybody else on the team. And so, you know, there isn't a, the, like, I, I never really experienced any degree of, because I said, so type type stuff. Um, In in fact, it was, it's, it's a, they have a really strong culture of, you know, constructive feedback and like genuine constructive feedback. Uh, You know, you don't, you don't get any, you don't get any benefit out of tearing anybody around you down or sabotaging their work because at the end of the day, uh, your interests are pretty well aligned with the interests of the people around you.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, no, right. th- thank you for sharing that. It's, it's really interesting. I, I've, I've not myself worked for one of these giant companies, but people often, I think, you know, we talk about tech and the tech sector, and people think of Amazon as a tech company, or they think of Tesla, for example, or SpaceX as tech companies. And it's oft- often lost in the discourse is the fact that, you know, what, you know, the, the leadership from people like Bezos and Musk, and, and you know, not to lionize anybody, but um, mm-hmm. what they've... What they and their organizations have managed to do is innovate on the way people work together, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons they've been they're they're so successful. Uh, and you know, for ex- a, a great example that I like is um, Tesla managed to build uh, a, power, a power a big power station yep. in, in Australia. In yeah, Antarctica. that was that was really cool. Yeah, in like three months, and it's like yes, a lot of technology went into that. But can you the system in place to get that initiated? And completed with all the and like just the regulation side alone, yep. Yep. what you the the way everything has to be in you know in alignment, the way uh, there has to be no bullshit or at least as little bullshit as possible, as you say the because I said so or you know don't don't tell your boss they're wrong, right. that stuff you just can't you can't get things done at that scale and that efficiently if there's human bullshit
1: yeah I mean really like I mean you're hitting kind of on the thing that I've been focusing on for like the last year which is really like the thing that they do is they have they have leveraged scalable communication Um, it it better than well not better than everybody there's actually quite a few companies that are doing it very well Um, but you know like there's just not a lot of butts in seats mentality there isn't a whole lot of we have to face-to-face talk about everything if you have to face if you have to have conversations about everything that you do and and the, the only way that you communicate is like via conversation or they like short form writing it's gonna be miserable like you'll never scale you'll never be able to do anything repeatedly uh, every all that communication is incredibly low fidelity And you just, you end up, you know, six months, you'll go six month periods and like half your team will be building one thing and the other half will be building something totally different. And then sales will be selling something that was completely not what you were doing and marketing won't have been able to actually like message what's going on because well, they're, they're out of the loop. Like you just, and and those are the kinds of delays that end up really hurting most projects you know the the biggest the biggest difference I see between like the, the you know pardon the characterization but like the lumbering enterprise right like the slow-moving low, low self-confidence enterprises out there is is almost purely in their communication uh, mechanisms um, they've got the people like that's not a problem um, it's it's really comes down to how do you communicate and do so in confidence and and do so in a way that you can leverage that group critical thinking.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm look I've got a few questions to ask you about that. Uh, in, sure. A little bit a little bit later. Uh, and so thank you for uh sort of foreshadowing. Uh, sure. uh but uh before we do that, so you were at Amazon, you really enjoyed it, uh, you learned a lot there, and then you decided to leave. Uh, why was that?
1: Um, well, like 2013 was like this little miniature tech renaissance of the decade um pretty much everything that happened in this decade happened in 2013 from a technology perspective um it was it was really an incredible year between like Oculus Rift Happening that the you know, oculus rift was happening this incredible 3d experiences was happening at the same time We were seeing this boom of 3d printers it was happening at the same time We saw this drone and autonomous drone technology it was happening at the same time. We saw linux and linux containers And that kind of like turned into orchestration and, and microservices was kind of like booming um, I mean I could go on and on and on like I, I it, 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 Pretty much everything interesting that happened Really was seeded in that year, and probably a little bit in 2012. Um, so, and I'm sitting at Amazon, right? And I'm working in an r- incredibly fast-paced environment where we're talking about like problems at an incredible scale, and and that was all great. But at the same time, like I'm looking at this really like whirlpool of crazy, bleeding-edge innovation that's happening. Like Hacker News was really exciting that year, and. You know, and so I like, you know, I, I kind of got in my spare time, got to touch and get a little bit of experience with, with some of that stuff, especially around Docker, like that for me was this really interesting project because, you know, I could go home and in my free time, you know, in, in, in under a couple minutes, uh, download and install this, this project that was, that would, it, it helped me do something that we were doing at Amazon. It was, it was actually a little bit easier than do, than than working with packaging and Amazon. And it was free. Whereas Amazon's funding an entire team to build and maintain and develop those tools internally. And for the first time, like I was able to stick together like three or four technologies at home that that allowed me to iterate and to, to, to you know, build and iterate really, really rapidly. Like, and that was really exciting. Um, and so I just kind of like got way into it, you know, and and started doing a little bit of public speaking about it, talked around the office about it, did some like public talks about Docker. Um, I don't think i had started blogging about it yet at that point. Um, and then in 2014, um, uh, Acquisitions Editor Manning called me up and just said, he wanted to talk about Docker because I had been one of the handful of people that had come up when searching around for people who know anything about it. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we had probably a good hour and a half long conversation. He asked me if I want to write a book, and I said yes. Um, and then ended up, you know, my plan was just to do it in, in spare time. I did the whole external uh, external uh, work authorization request that they were having people do at the time. I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right. I don't want to be sneaky or anything like that because uh, it's going to be a major work, and my name's going to be out there, and you're going to be able to buy it on Amazon. So... Uh, so went through the proper channels and they're like, Oh, like the whole conversation got really muddy. My entire line of line of management were incredibly supportive about it. Um, but it's a huge company as you know. And so, um, ultimately they were like, well, we're not really sure. Can you show us like, and then like Amazon lawyers started talking. And like, for me personally, when lawyers start talking, they're like probably some of the best paid lawyers in the world. Like, I'm just going to go. I'm, I'm cool. So at that point, I had been there quite a while. I had felt like it, 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 that I had learned not everything that I could, but at the very least on that team, in that space, in that like that set of technical challenges and in management, I had, I had validated a lot and I had learned quite a bit. And so it was kind of like a natural time to make a move anyway. So I just said, well, I got an opportunity to do something that is fairly rare. So I'm just going to go do it.
0: And so I, I bailed. And it was great. Yeah. Yeah. And it must've been, it must've been really exciting, uh, to have that challenge of being or adventure being on your own.
1: Uh, Yeah. I think, you know, people, people in tech, especially software engineers are, are so, so fortunate these days. Like really, I mean, a lot of my friends are kind of like, Whoa, what are you going to do for money? And all this kind of stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you know I'm coming from from one of the the most well-known companies in the world with one of the most desirable and I'm you know highly paid skill sets around like I could just like walk into the street and hold my hand up for five minutes and say I'm looking for a job and have one by the next week like this is not a high-risk activity there's no specific bravery here right like it's a very safe thing Um, and so you know like it was exciting and it was interesting and it was great to kind of like hold myself to a little bit of you know high bar for self-motivation and and discipline um but at the end of the day you know that was
0: kind of straightforward um my next question is a bit of a digression but was that when you started working in coffee shops
1: yeah absolutely um so Yes. Well, I mean, I had, I had kind of like off and on on the weekends and whatnot. I'd go out and, and hang out and, and do that whole thing. But you know, like one of the first things I did was, I mean, even even like the month, I think the month prior, I just bought a brand new MacBook. Love that machine. I'm talking to you on it right now. Um, and. Just hit the coffee shop. I was like, look, I really don't need much. I'm a, I'm a low overhead kind of guy. That's why I studied CS instead of instead of an electrical degree. Um, I'm not into the high capital type type stuff. So I figure if I can get a chair, a cup of coffee, and a laptop together, I'm good.
0: I, uh, I asked the question because, as I'm sure you, you guessed, because you have a great post on on Medium, which I'll link to, of course, in the transcription of this of this episode about coffee shops. It's lengthy uh, and very very good. <laughs> um, you are Thank an you. expert on coffee shop, uh, and so <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions because I, I, a lot of a, a lot of uh, lean pub authors and a lot of our listeners um, are uh, you know software engineers, and a lot yeah. of them uh, are quite independently minded. Um, a lot of them actually worked for big companies and became consultants, um, and, uh, writing a book is an, one of an important thing to do if you want to be a consultant often. Yep. Um, and so I wanted to ask the expert a couple of questions. So what's the most important thing? What's the first thing you look for in a coffee shop?
1: Um, it kind of depends on what I'm looking for, or, I mean, it, it kind of depends on like what I'm going there for. If I'm going because I desperately have to get some work done, all I really need is, you know, a clean place to sit. Um, I will buy something even if I know that the, the beverages aren't going to be that good, because like that's just part of this arrangement. I'm not paying for a you know $700 a month co-working space. I'm in a coffee shop, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to buy it. If I don't suspect that the coffee is very good, I'll get an iced tea because iced tea is always great. Um, I think. I don't. I don't even need it to be particularly quiet. That's not really that big of a deal. It is a little bit of a turnoff if there's like a ton of kids running around and like bumping into stuff, or if it's particularly chaotic. Um, but the white sp- the white noise for me actually helps me focus. Besides, I've usually got huge headphones on, and it's not that big of a deal. Um, if I'm going there for coffee, there's one there's one telltale that I think is almost a hundred percent for us, which is if there's more if they sell more than one size of cappuccino the espresso is probably not very good um Man,
0: why what why why is that
1: um pouring an espresso shot is is easy to mess up like it, it's actually a small miracle when people can get it right consistently and so if they have like a very big menu it's almost 100% of the time they're going to have multiple sizes of cappuccino if it's oh, if it's Right? Like, and, and so if they have a very big menu, the chances that they're constantly pouring espresso shots is very low, right? Or, or, that, or that, you know, if they have like 40 different flavored drinks, they, people don't care what the espresso tastes like, right? Because it's going to get covered up with sugar. Like a cappuccino is espresso in a very specific amount of milk. Uh, and so like, there's really nothing in that to, to kind of get in the way. Um, but if you're looking for a good, really good third wave coffee shop, you can usually tell just by walking in and looking at the menu, if they've got more than one size cappuccino, then, then it, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed. You should get like a milk or something like that.
0: Yeah. I found that, 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 that's a really great explanation. Um, that, that hits with something. I've got a friend who's, um, a, a bit of a sushi snob, mm-hmm. um, and, or, he would say selective, probably, or something like that. Sure, sure. But, uh, but um, you know, the the big menu is immediately yeah. a way of setting your expectations. You know, and I, that's one yeah. thing I really liked about your post is like it doesn't mean you're you you now are in a negative relationship with this place. It's just like uh-huh. now you under you you do your triage and now you understand the place you're in and you adjust what your expectations and your behavior. Right, are. right. It's
1: it it's 100% about leveling your expectations. Like, if I go in and I look around and I see a drink that's big, frothy foam, I know, okay, this is a French-style coffee place, right? And they'll have the giant mugs and they'll be cozy and it'll be all sorts of, like, lovely and, and pseudo-romantic. And so I'm not going to go in there and be like, I'm really in the mood for, like, a sharp third-wave espresso shot. Like, this, you're just never going to get it. It's going to be black. It'll, it's it's going to be... It's it's not going to be right, and so you know, like I'm not going to go in and then be all upset, <laughs> right? Like I'm going to go in and go, oh, okay, well, like I'm going to get a mocha or I'm going to get a big floofy thing, and and kind of like know what that's about. Um, but it, it's it's a really interesting little microcosm because it it really is like managing expectations is really what companies are all about, right? Like brand is established through consistency. Um, when you're going to a whole lot, a universe of of little coffee shops that are all different owners, all different brands, you don't expect a whole lot of consistency. Um, you, if you're ordering the same thing, there's a temptation to do so. Um, but I think that's, that's pretty worn down. If I go to the same coffee shop, you know, time after time after time, and it's variable, the quality there, I'm not going to go to that coffee shop for very much longer, right? Because that's, I don't know what I'm buying before I give you money. I'm certainly not going to tip before I get my coffee, right? Because that, which is another crazy kind of like pattern, not that you should like tip people, but like, you know, it feels like weird doing that when I have no idea what I'm even buying.
0: Um, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned third wave. I'll ask you, I'll ask you what that means in the coffee shop uh, dimension in a, just a moment, but there's actually a quite a funny coincidence here. Um, just a couple of interviews ago, I interviewed someone named Alex Hillman, who was mm-hmm. uh, in, involved in sort of first wave co working. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told me the origin story of first wave co working, which was basically there were a bunch of people in San Francisco, in the mid 2000s, who uh, loved to work at a coffee shop. And they but they they'd, they'd show up en masse because they would coordinate and then it was like, people weren't didn't really understand what was going on. It's like all of a sudden, a bunch of people showed up with laptops. They'd all, be, they'd all be quietly sitting at different tables. And then they'd all laugh at the same time, because they were all in the same like chat room. So like, you know, it was just sort of surreal. And then one day, and then maybe they didn't have their tipping etiquette down. Maybe people just didn't like the. Maybe they didn't uh, drink as much coffee as they should have. So they'd get one cup and sit there for eight hours or something like that. Right, and right. one day they all showed up. And the, the coffee shop manager had blocked all of the power outlets. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was very, like, they knew, like, that is directed at us, and that is a way of telling us to not come here anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so and some of them were uh, opening up an office for a startup anyway, and they said, well, why don't we just get a bigger space than we were going to do otherwise, and now we'll have people come here. So there's an interesting connection. Anyway, but that was first wave. Then there was second wave, which was basically mm-hmm. WeWork and the sort of right. commercialization of it. And then there's third wave, which is, like, sort of learning the lessons. Is third wave coffee shop, is that is that sort of similar along the like that? yeah yes i mean to,
1: like as soon as you say what something like that is you're just going to get shredded by a whole bunch of pedantic uh definitions and and a whole bunch, mired in argument i mean i would just go out to say it's kind of like it's really like a return to like it, it's, it's it's part of the food movement right so it's it's about like finding really good beans and and like very purposeful roasting um, and making like very purposeful coffee. I wouldn't say it's one kind or another, but it's like there's a lot of intent put into it. And so that's where you'll see people say no, a cappuccino is this many ounces, right? If you want something bigger than that, you want a latte. If you want something smaller than that, maybe you want a cortado or maybe you want a macchiato or like get into these things. Um, But it's kind of it's, you know, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that like Starbucks, pre like, like is a, that it's a reaction to a Starbucks coffee. Um, but like, like the transitions from, from a Starbucks lifestyle into a, a third wave, like having appreciation for third wave coffee is actually a pretty easy transition because it's, very Italian tradition. You're not going to find a lot of French style It's tight, tight microphones when they're appropriate. It's really, really good espresso. It's espresso. That's that you actually enjoy just drinking as espresso instead of it being some kind of like very black abrasive experience. Um, unless that's specifically what you're going for, but like, you're not going to walk into, into, you know, a very French style, um, more of like a hangout place that happens to serve coffee and, you know, be able to talk to the barista about their single origin, natural process beans. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's not for everybody. Not everybody has to get into it. I like it. I kind of accidentally. Um, so, you know, the more you learn about something more, you, you begin to appreciate it. And then the more, you know, you develop a taste for it.
0: Yeah, um, uh, just to just to give people a sense of the the level of detail that you can go into for appreciation of coffee shops, you talk about in your post about the importance of flat surfaces in bathrooms, so, <laughs> so you can rest your laptop there. And when I was reading it, I was laughing out loud because I was reminded of how often nightclubs deliberately don't have don't flat have surfaces flat surfaces because they don't want people doing <laughs> cocaine in there. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but no, yeah, in, no, in, a, no, in a, yeah. a coffee
1: shop, in a coffee shop, they sell the cocaine in the front. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. that, that's
0: right, But, you know, that really resonated with me because I'm um, uh, in, you know, in a former life, I was an academic uh, and uh, or in academia generally. And um, uh, one of the things that I found really frustrating about working in libraries was what to do with my laptop when when I had to go to the bathroom. And of course, coffee yep. shops have the, same, have the same. I mean, I, I guess in libraries, it's probably it's probably orders of magnitude safer generally to leave your laptop If you, you know, at a desk or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you really have
0: to make a judgment
1: call. Every, every shop is different, right? If you're sitting there and there's 30 people that you see there every single day and it's otherwise a fairly low churn, then, you know, but at the end of the day, like if you're working on something that's highly valuable on a machine, that's highly valuable then you should treat it with that appropriate level of respect. If you're working on your five year old, $2,000 machine at the time and all of your work is backed up and it's, you know, properly encrypted at rest. So the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to lose a laptop. Then, yeah, then forget about it. Just, you know, flap it around, you know, take as much risk as you're, as you're willing to, to allow or that you can tolerate. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, thanks for thanks for talking about that. I was really looking forward to it. Trying- no, I'm glad I'm glad you brought
1: that up. That was that was a really fun that was a really fun uh article to write and you know, boiled from a lot of opinion that had been formed over the last half decade.
0: Well, and it's and it's and it's also I I think I mean really important to think deeply about uh how our the way we work and the way our spaces are designed uh, affects the way we we can can work. Um and that's particularly true if you're independent. I mean, if you're independent You can choose where to work and you can make you could probably make more choices about about what your working space is like and and what your working life is like
1: You can certainly make a lot of poor choices It's a lot easier to make poor choices, right? It's if you're going to the but even like it doesn't take much To to inspire discipline like if you're getting up and going to the office at roughly the same time every day You've already got that fundamental cadence built in you know, one of the first things that I see people struggle with is failing to maintain even something that looks like a rough, regular schedule. Right. Like sometimes, like people who, and this is again not universal, but I see a lot of people like, man, I'm having a hard time getting started. I'm like, well, and I come to find out, yeah, like, they were working four hours in the middle of the night the other day. And then like two days later, they're trying to work for six hours during the day in these large blocks and they're not stretching or they're not doing, you know, basic self-care stuff. I'm like, well, like why <laughs> you just have to like walk them through it with questions, right? Like try to, let's see if we can solve the problem. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have the control and, but it's not necessarily for everybody yet. So I think we've got a little
0: ways, little ways to go. And so, uh, getting back to your career and to to working independently, so you you wrote you wrote your book uh, the yep. first the first version of Docker in Action, and then you uh, started a consultancy, I gather.
1: I did, I did. I, I needed to needed to make some money. The the book to, took a little bit longer than I anticipated it taking. Um, for a myriad of reasons we would kind of like had these chunks of like high productivity with some, some, you know, travel interspersed in there or, you know, long periods of editing um, that really weren't planned. Um, and so it just took longer than we wanted it to. Um, and, but, you know, six months in it was basically like, I need to do something to start earning some money. Don't really want to get a full-time job yet. So let's see what's out there. And it was particularly fortuitous time for this whole thing because, you know, I was very, very early. You know, I'm an, I'm an OG Docker Captain, as they used to call it. But I mean, I, I was creating all sorts of content. I was doing a lot of blogging, still doing a lot of public speaking, and of course, writing the book, doing a lot of stuff to promote the book, running a meetup for Docker, um, or about Docker, not for Docker, and. Doing a lot of travel um, and just kind of generally spreading the word. And so starting the consultancy, starting it was kind of hard, honestly. Um, I met a couple people, you know, through public speaking. It was it was usually like through the through the meetup or or public speaking or things like that, where I would kind of meet a person and just kind of push it a little bit more. And and it turns out I was talking to a decision maker who actually needed help or something like that. Um, and so you know that was that was. That was okay. Um, what I found, interestingly enough, maybe maybe this is interesting. It was interesting to me um, that ninety ninety five percent of the time they found me because of Docker, but almost never did they actually need help with Docker. Like they would say, "Oh yeah, we need like oh this containers thing," but then it like they they were just never ready for it. So it turned it turned into a lot of. You know application design consulting it turned into a lot of general automation and DevOps consulting there was Quite often we would end up talking about uh, Disposable infrastructure or like getting to the cloud or cloud management practices It's kind of like broad range of of stuff that, of course I had a lot of opinion about and had a lot of experience with and and you know And all that stuff is so tightly coupled
0: anyway Um,
1: but yeah, so it was a good conversation starter, I would say.
0: And um, you mentioned document. Well, you mentioned communication earlier, uh, and so you, you consulted for a few years. Your book came out, uh, and uh, then you started Topple. Yeah. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the company and its mission.
1: <clears throat> so we started Topple initially. Um, well, it was it's 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 a different entity, um, but really what we were coming around to was that the consulting that we were doing um, we kept. we just kept it was not particularly fulfilling if I can be totally blunt um, the problems that our clients had were almost never technical um, I mean certainly there were technical issues that we helped them work through and all that good stuff but at the end of the day our when our clients would fail or when they would encounter major setbacks it was never because of technology it was almost exclusively because of the communication patterns or their lack thereof. And so we were kind of like sitting, we, we, we took like a good six months to kind of really roll around like what's going on, like, okay, we want, we want to do something else. We don't want to necessarily chase the consulting anymore. So what do we want to do? We, we rolled around a couple of, of big ideas in open source or, or th- other things in the DevOps and infrastructure space, you know, projects that we could kick off and and really launch. Um, but ultimately like that, that whole industry by then had kind of, I mean, in my, in in my opinion, really eaten itself. There was so much consolidation and there was almost no innovation. Um, with the exception of maybe two companies, like there's really, it was all business, business model tweaking and just, we had fallen into a very deep sales cycle. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, it was just, but we're really trying to convert a lot of these adopters at the time. And so that was not just really not a a good place to be to to good kind of company to start. Um, and so we kind of circled back around to this communication thing. And based on my time at Amazon, I said, I think I, I think I've got an idea. And so we started, um, topple, um, really as this kind of second vessel and to try to figure out what, the business around communication looked like. Um, Would it be training? Would it be consulting again? Would it be product? And really by the beginning of 2018, we saw a path forward for product. And it was really, so we kind of said like, okay, Amazon doesn't have these problems. So why doesn't Amazon have these problems? Or at least nowhere near to the degree everybody else does. Um, And it really came back around to long form writing. Um, if there is something that they need to communicate, they do it using long form writing, and it's very opinion. You don't just say long form writing. Um, they, they wouldn't say that. They'd talk about their one pagers or their six pagers or Jeff Bezos's memos to shareholders, and it really comes down to memos. Um, memo is so long form writing to me. Is something that has a, like a, a, a single document that has enough content that allows the reader to think critically about that content, right? And it doesn't have to be long. You can have long-form writing that's a page if if you can think critically about that subject matter in that page. Um, and so, this is something that they do for everything. Um, there's a whole lot of other opinions, not just about the writing, but also on how they consume that content. Um, and so what we did was it, we ended up writing some docs. We wrote a couple six page documents that says this is how to write for, to communicate at work. This is how to read to communicate at work. And this is how to manage using communicate, or using, you know, long form writing as your, as your medium. And it's really that that I believe that helps them scale um, because they're able to communicate in mass With high fidelity and asynchronously, um, which is really remarkable when I see the things that slow people down or, uh, you know, like at other large companies, it's, you know, when they when they communicate using PowerPoint slides, um, they're. They they don't actually say anything. It's 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 a it's basically a cave painting, right? It's incredibly low fidelity, raw construct, and they're they, they get a little bit of from the orator, um, but ultimately, the the author the presenter is really hoping that the people consuming this content share enough background context. That they can actually understand what's even going on. Uh, and the dirty little secret is that the audience talks so infrequently that you really that, that that the the percentage of time where they actually have any idea what's going on is is very, very, very low. Um and so like it's it's almost a completely useless medium. Um I I, I say like presentations are for are for sales. Um and I don't mean that in a bad way either, right? Because the the purchase, like the way people make purchasing decisions is very well studied and it has absolutely nothing to do with evaluating things on merit. It's all about emotional appeal. Um, and if I can think of one thing that you should not do internally for a company, uh, it's make decisions based on the emotional appeal of a given solution.
0: It's uh, this is a really interesting topic um, uh It's, it's very sort of deep and kind of like the the nature of what it means to manage a successful company in an age when every company is a software company. Um, and it's come up a few times on this podcast before, um, one observation I like to make, and it might be, might be me who, who came up with it or a colleague of mine I worked with a few years ago, uh, when we were working on a collaboration software product. But, um, one of the reasons that it took so long for the personal computer to be adopted into, um, businesses into companies was that typing was seen as an underlings activity and, and it was gendered, right? So typing was, right. was women's work right. to this day. And I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and with the full on stereotype and generalization here, an East coast executive is someone who never touches a keyboard. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Blackberries were took off so well and one of reasons that, that, that tablets and mobile phones became so popular. But yep. an, an executive is, is sort of conceived of as a – and I'm going to gender it because it's gendered – as a man yep. of action who's playing golf and getting on an airplane and uh, having dinner and you know, having a big-time meeting and then right. you know, banging the table and making decisions. But the idea that sitting down – and thinking about something at length and then writing about it and 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 at length as you as you point out i think very well doesn't necessarily mean uh a long document right what was the the mark twain joke i'm sorry i wrote you such a long letter i didn't have time to write a short one Um, right uh and this idea that if you're if you're managing complex technology which is what all companies are have to do if they're going to succeed nowadays the way you communicate communicating intelligently and as you say asynchronously which is which is a way of saying through documents, uh, unless you can master that, you're not going to be And the, the, the sort of like the, the, the paradox, I think, in a lot of people's thinking is if you want to get that power station built in three months, you need to have a really robust- they,
1: they, 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 they make micro-optimizations for things that are fast and in doing so, they sacrifice fidelity. Um, and they, they, they lean on I mean, really what it comes down to is they think, oh, this has to be fast, I just wanna get it out. You get all these minimization statements about communication, they just this, they can't I just send it via chat? Can we just have a quick, converse, a quick conversation, right? And it's, it's incredibly harmful. You know, like you, you, you've talked about the East Coast executives, but it, I actually think that we're facing this really interesting challenge. Um, because i mean even you call that like tech and software and like this is not different this is we're actually in this really weird age where communication over distance and at scale has become so cheap that it's useless is completely and utterly useless internet comments you know the value of any given tweet um, you just like the slack conversations are absolute garbage. Like, I mean, the, the nothing like you can have a greatest conversation in the world. And like 70, 70% of that conversation took place in your head. It never even got out of your mouth. Right. And, and there's no way to actually analyze like complex ideas or, or actually have thick, you know, rich discourse because we're always chasing the bleeding edge of the conversation. If it follows, more, if, if some point follows more than like two sentences back, it's gone. Right. You'll never get back to it. It's incredibly linear. And so we're like these very much these slaves, the short form addiction, and it was really killed everybody. And I would say people in software are probably the worst of them all because we're born of the internet today. Right. But you know, like, look at, I mean, if you look back to a time when communication was not so cheap, it was all long form and it was done really well. George Washington, George, George Washington is one of my favorite examples. This is a, this is a man who managed exclusively through documents. He would ask his, he would ask his generals each to draw proposals and they would write it in a letter. They'd send it to him and he'd sit down and he'd read them both. he would think critically about the subject matter and he'd render a decision or he'd ask for additional information. Like this is, this is the way you, this is just the way that, that you, that you work, (laughs) that you manage at scale. Right. And we've had the gift of writing since forever ago. And, and, we, it was born out of the necessity to be accurate. I, I've got this really great post that I've used in some of my trainings. It's like the, the, the communication maturity timeline. And it's like one of the first, one of the first records that we have, like the, 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 the line between prehistory and history um, comes back around to um, uh, people who had flocks of sheep and when before they would send the sheep out with the shepherd, they would want a record of how many sheep they gave to the shepherd to you know roam the fields and and graze. because when they came back, if they didn't have the same number of sheep, they wanted to have something to point to, right? And so the first thing that they did was they it was really interesting. They had these like beads um, that they would press into clay, and they'd say, "This is how many." we had, and they'd kind of like both agree to it. And then they, would you know, count them up and, and do that whole thing. So it's like, if you want to be accurate about something, you want to be able to communicate with other people or even yourself across time, you have to write it down and you have to write it down with high fidelity. I can't just, you know, blurt out three random words at someone and expect them to have five pages worth of, of material. um, yeah. And it
0: really, yeah, know. it's it's really interesting how how fundamental this kind of thing is. Um, I inter- I interviewed um, someone on this podcast a while ago named Ian Mile, um who mm-hmm. eventually became um, chief software architect for a giant multinational investment yep. bank. Um, and I th- I, th- I hope I am getting it right that it was him, uh, but he had at one point earlier in his career been working for a gambling site, mm-hmm. and there is millions and millions of dollars at stake every second you have to get everything right you have to be up all the time because like there's a game on right that people are betting on uh, right. real time and i think he he at one point convinced his his boss or colleague i'm going to take a few months just to write documentation and you know that was the that was sort of his his ticket to a rocket ship career right was like really understanding everything but 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 Taking this gamble, this that like I'm not going to be writing code or anything like that. I'm just going to be understanding everything and writing it down well, so that like if something goes wrong, somebody not only has a place to go, but I have to structure it in such a way that they know where to go. Right, and it's that it's that structure that's so important as well. So it's not just like having the documents. There needs to be a structure to it and there needs to be an understanding of how that structure works.
1: Yeah. And, and especially in software, like there's, I think it's really important to realize that they there, we have this tendency to say documents to mean documentation. And there's certainly that that is a real use for long form writing and it's incredibly important, especially in like operational scenarios or basically if you want to do anything with with a high degree of consistency, it has to be documented. You can't just sit down at an espresso machine and be like, I'm going to make espresso and, and just kind of like. Figure it out on the fly and then figure it out every time you say no What we're gonna do is like the water is gonna be this temperature There's gonna be exactly this weight of espresso in this I'm gonna tamp it a very specific way and When I make it like the the machine is going to bring that water to a to a specific pressure for a certain amount of time And it might back it off to a certain amount of pressure for a certain amount of time and after a certain amount of time It's over right and When you can do that, when you can actually say this is our process, you can execute consistently Consistently. or that's what what documentation and and modeling the systems are for. But what's really missing, that what we're not doing is using documents to communicate right these don't necessarily even need to be uh, these these maintained machines over time like this is ephemeral this is point in time it looks like journaling uh and this is a particularly bad word among like modern forward thinking companies but it looks like writing reports which felt like this really you know gross gross thing uh that was a fallout from high bureaucracy environments and but I think there was a was misattrib- uh, misattributation there. They weren't bad because you were writing something. Reports are bad if they're not used. If you're doing work that doesn't make any sense, it really is the bureaucracy that's the problem, not that you're writing to communicate. Um, and really, I, th- there's another big leap. When people are talking about it these days, they talk about writing culture a lot. The, the word becomes writing culture or the the, the, the catchphrase. And it's really the writing has almost nothing to do with it, which, it, which is you know, something something that I discovered over like the last year, year and a half. Um, the word you need to be looking for the ch- If you're going to make a change in your organization, the change that you need to make is you need to be able to expect to read the things that you need to know to do your job. And because if you need to read it, someone will write it. But if you don't know what you need to read, you'll never get what you need written. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It totally does. (laughs) So if if I can say, hey, I'm thinking about or like we're reviewing our business strategy. We're considering uh, getting into the, the open source infrastructure software uh, market. Um, I need to know like, you know, the, what, what's the total market opportunity? Like what are, what are some of the things, like what are some of the pillars that, that our would be competitors are marketing to, like what are the values that they're trying to sell? Um, yada, 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 like, like what are the costs of their solutions? That kind of stuff. If I say, I need to know these things, then a lot of people, maybe people don't even know things about those things, can actually answer those questions. They, they can, you've, you've scaled out the number of authors because you've been able to say, this is who I am, that I'm your audience. Because you've been able to say, I'm your audience, this is exactly what I need to know, this is when I need to know, this is why I need to know it. If you can answer these, these like five questions that we kind of like preach, then you, then you can actually get the information you need quickly and and way more effectively um so
0: speaking of uh knowing what to read we've been talking for almost an hour now and i think it might be time to move on to the to the subject of your of your book sure. uh docker in action uh, and and specifically the second edition um so without going sort of too deep into the weeds uh, i wanted to ask you if you could explain just you know imagine you're talking to and i'm sure actually this happens to you all the time but if you're talking to someone who doesn't know how the computers go what's docker <laughs>
1: Oh man. If I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know how the computers go, um, it's incredibly difficult to to talk about. Um, I would probably hit on, um, I don't know, man, like, honestly, this is something that, that was specifically the question that held up chapter one for so long. Chapter one was a nightmare to write because, there are so many ways to talk about the benefits of this technology that only someone who is experienced with software would really get. Um, I could give that and and what everybody at the time, even back in the day, even now, was falling back on were like these metaphors. It's like a virtual machine, but it's not really, it's like an efficient virtual machine. But like all that messaging actually gave rise to an entire world of people with a fundamental misunderstanding who were technical uh, of what the thing was. And it led to a whole universe of of pedantic security arguments. And it was just, it did the whole thing a really big, it was really rough. I think it had a lot of negative impact, that, that whole marketing challenge.
0: I want, I want to, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to say what a, that's such a great answer um, on a number of levels. One of which is actually when I was reading it, when I was reading the chapter, I was like the first chapter of your book. I was like, you know, it's, it just, that's an interesting way to open. You know, you kind of open in medias res kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I was like, huh, I wonder what, what was behind that decision because obviously it's a very carefully written book. And it was obviously that there, there was a decision behind that. And I can see it. And one of the reasons I, another reason I like that answer so much is that oftentimes, like, you know, and I'm sure someone listening who doesn't know how the computers go felt like, you know, I was being condescending when I put it that way, but no, and, and, and those, those, the thing is those explanation often when we're in, in, contemporary, well, I mean, generally speaking, we have this common sense idea that anything can be we it's not explicit that we believe this in our minds, but that anything can be sort of more or less communicated pretty quickly. And that's just not to anybody. And that's just not true. And so often, because we have this non explicit belief, where people are often immediately on the back foot, if they can't understand something quickly. Right. Uh, and, And to say straight up, like, you just have to understand in order to understand this concept, like what Docker is, you just have to, there's a lot of stuff you have to know first before we can talk about that. It's just, yeah. it's just a great answer. But I think it, you know, if if we approached many things in life that way, with that kind of understanding, you know, a lot of us would be a lot less anxious and feel a lot less insulted. Uh, all the yeah, time. It, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's so hard, right? Because I mean, I, I, was learning about
1: writing a book as I was doing it. Um, the conversations that I was having with my publisher and, and with the development editor, editor, uh, and, and the feedback were just like across the board about chapter one. Uh, everybody wanted to put the entire chapter into the first paragraph. Like really the first paragraph of the first chapter of the book was by far and away the hardest thing to write. Not because, you know, it was bad writing or because I was learning to write. I mean, like I I went through probably a thousand completely viable first paragraphs, but like the problem was that every person you bring it to and ask for feedback brings their own context right and if they want to have all their answers all their questions answered in the first paragraph no one will be happy this is a please everyone type scenario so if for for the executives the CTOs out there who or or the analysts that just want to read the first chapter of a book like you know if if i really am writing a first chapter to 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 talk to those individuals, then everyone else should just skip the first chapter, right? Or to bring something into the front matter that says executive summary, an actual executive summary, something like that. Um, But it was so frustrating. Everybody wanted something different from it. And and no no two metaphors worked for anybody. Uh, And so it was really super challenging. Like that was absolute misery. Um, but lessons learned, right. And the more I've learned about marketing and messaging and, and the, and even sales or, you know, since then has been like completely eye opening. I'm like, okay, well this is, this is what they were going for. I, I really kind of wish they would have just come out and said certain things, uh, much earlier cause it, it would have taught me and I probably wouldn't have, would have been able to come to what they were looking for much more quickly.
0: So. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, uh, you know, a large part of our audience is authors or would-be authors, and hearing about how difficult these things can be sometimes, and the discussions that can happen around things, I think helps people feel a little bit less alone when yeah. when, when they come to face them themselves. Um, and so, one of the interesting things about Docker, I think, is that um, in order to understand it, you it's important to have an understanding of the history of computing. And this is probably, you could probably, any, anyone who's interested in something could probably say the same thing about it. But, but, um, so let's, let's like, let's, let's try and try and talk about it to someone who is sort of knows enough to, has enough concepts to understand what it is. Is there, so for example, sorry, just, just, just give a little bit of context. I'm, I'm sort of, I know a little bit of programming and stuff like that, and I used to build financial models in my investment banking days and stuff like that. But I'm Leanpub's resident non-technical person. Sure. Um, So let's put it this way: let's let's say you're you're actually talking to me and you're trying to explain to me what Docker is. What would you?
1: If I'm I'm talking to you, and you have a little bit of programming experience, there's a term that almost all programmers become familiar with uh, early in their career called dependency hell. Um, where you're you're trying to write something or you're trying to install something and it depends on a whole world of different things and when you try to install them uh, you find out well like I need this version I need it like if I've got you know my library a and uh the software I'm I'm trying to install needs version two of that. Well, then like some other program that I also need to use explicitly requires version one of it. Uh, and so you have to figure out ways to carefully untangle this very difficult to discover web of dependencies um, when all those projects are sitting next to each other right because they're pulling from the same locations which means you can't have two versions of the same thing in the same location it just doesn't work Um, and so one of the biggest benefits that docker provides is it allows software authors to package up their software and almost all of its dependencies into a single kind of like abstract blob right and as a consumer, you can install these packaged uh, blobs of software, and they can all coexist and they can all run at the same time. This was for me, this was the first, this was my eureka moment with Docker. Um, I'll give you the, the, the brief story. So, like six months prior to learning about Docker in May 2013, I was trying to install, or I wanted to use a time series database. Um, for my for one of my personal projects um, because you know Amazon had, one, had had a few they were really really good I loved them I became just absolutely enamored with doing that so I was like I'm gonna do this at home and I found what probably the most popular open source project um, at the time is called um, Graphite and I spent I went home you know one day after after work and I was like way into it I'm like I'm gonna get this thing set up and installed and I'm gonna have a nice setup and I'm gonna be able to do my stuff. And I spent the next eight hours going through probably 10 different installation guides, pouring through config files to find commented out, comments saying like, oh, if you actually wanna install this thing, do this thing, and then fighting with the dependency, the hell of the whole thing. And even at the end of eight hours, I I couldn't get it done. I was just like, look, this is garbage. I I never wanna touch this this again, Um, I'm over it. And then six months later, I, uh, you know, come around to to Docker and and I'm like, all right, cool, let's kick the tires on this. Didn't really understand what it was all about yet, but I knew that I can install software. And um, they, you know, this was really early. They didn't have Docker Hub yet, but they had like some kind of index for pulling software. And I said, let's try this out. And and sure enough, I found a graphite an image that had graphite in it. And, you know, including the time it took for me to install Docker, I had the graphite up and running within two and a half minutes. And I was just like, oh my God, like this, this absolutely changes everything, right? Because suddenly I didn't have to pour through all that, that wasted effort, right? They're, they're letting the software author or the publisher Package their software in a way that makes it consumable at scale I I no longer had to be I I no longer had to have an incredibly deep understanding of the software I want to consume in order to do so And for me that was like the real lights-on moment. This was this was the value that it was contributing at scale and um, There's a lot there's a whole universe of other benefits associated with using containers uh, Docker or otherwise today, but I think that was probably the and it, and the biggest and continues to be the biggest benefit of, of using that software,
0: right? Right. Thank you very much for that. That that explains some that got across to me some things that I hadn't quite internalized yet. But so, for example, um, uh, I remember one time I was, uh, you know, uh, working on I was uh, sort of managing some programmers developing an app, uh, and this app was you know on the, on the app store and and uh, yep. it was dependent on things external to itself right. So it would sometimes break. And so the idea behind the Docker or the well, I mean, in containers or containerization had existed as a concept for a long time. Docker was one of the things that made it made it sort of usable, as it were uh, to just really shortcut the, the explanation. But what happens is, instead of having like this library that an app is dependent on being external to the app and changeable, Right. So that then right. the way the app looks at it breaks. Right. You actually put an instance of that library into a little box, into a box with yep. that app. And then that is all working on its own
1: it had its own little copy of the whole world right right? it had everything it needed right there and everywhere you go to pick up and drop this app it carries it along with it it doesn't have to worry it still does have to worry about the way it interacts with the system on a on on an app and just you know or it's whether it's a browser or an app or or linux itself there is a little bit there but it dramatically reduced that, that uh, surface.
0: And, and as I understand it as well, uh, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but these containers are immutable. Is that correct? And so is that, is that generally? Is, I mean, so, okay, here's, here's my cartoon. No, entry. no, no. Here's, yeah. here's my cartoon understanding of this. It used to be that you had your, your code out, out there somewhere running, mm-hmm. right? And if you wanted to change it, you would go into it and change part of it. And right. that's, that's something that's mutable. And something right. that's immutable means no, no, no. I'm not going to go into something that's out there and change it. I'm going to destroy it and replace it with something else. Right. Yes. So no, yes and no. Okay.
1: Um, The intent is to be immutable. They do not have to be immutable. They have Docker and containers provide a lot of really interesting way to to provide reuse um, in ways that promote not changing things. Because the hardest the hardest thing about making per, like real immutable systems is the fact that like every everything is designed to be changed, right? Like, this is like the root of modern computer architecture, um, and so people say immutable. What they really mean is disposable. Okay, like I don't I don't know who it was that wrote the book somewhere that proliferated the term immutable infrastructure or immutable computing. Like that it is absolutely the it completely incorrect term when people are talking about pets versus cattle or like the getting rid of things when they're the old configuration, what they're really talking about is disposability. And yeah, they, they, because containers are so, it's so easy to be in co- consistent with creating them because it's formulaic, right? I mean, it's, we have this higher level abstraction that literally does the exact same thing every single time, given the exact same inputs. Um, it, it, way reduced the bar to installing things it, it it gave us a language for talking about running software um, and moving moving around software and running software that was a little bit more platform agnostic than it had been in the past and that was really really powerful um, but yeah so like the, this is a whole suite of tools and really that whole the whole ecosystem that grew around it um, whether we're talking about Terraform from HashiCorp or other, you know, DevOps tool suites, like it was really about seeking that the best practice of changing things as little as possible, right? Like instead, just like disposing of a prior generation and being able to bring the system up in any state along its timeline, right? Like a rollback, does not necessarily mean change, mutating something back in time. It means literally blowing away the new thing and creating new from previous versions of the input, right? And, and so it, it is a roll forward. Um, I, could, I could geek out on that all day if you let me yeah, keep no, talking about no, it. <laughs> that's,
0: that's a great explanation. But yeah, just on the, on the subject of, of, of change, uh, uh, so Docker itself has changed. Yeah. And, and you're and you're writing a second edition of your book along with your co author? Yep. Oh, no, it's uh, it's out.
1: It, oh it's it's complete. Yes, it oh, is. Okay. We we, we okay. finished it um,
0: I don't even remember. Oh, sorry like, I, late, I, late late summer. Sorry about that. I live so much in the world of in progress publishing. <laughs> no, no, have no, But uh but yeah, so, so that's that's yeah. fantastic. And, Believe uh, me, I, I can I can relate to that. And and what were the what were some of the things that are new to the, the second edition of, of Docker in action?
1: Um, so the first edition was was published pre, kind of like on the precipice of um, what became known as orchestration and, and, and clustered platforms of, uh, for, for running containerized software. And at the time that I published that book, um, Kubernetes was still very, very, very young and very volatile. Um, Amazon had the Elastic Compute service out and that was the default way to run containers in the cloud and docker had i think for like the six months prior to writing the the last chapter um had had released something called swarm and which was just a very little you know proof of concept grade uh cluster control uh suite and so um the last chapter of the book i think i even prefaced it with like hey heads up like All of this material is volatile, right? Like we're at the beginning of something crazy and new, but if you want to touch it and get interested in what's going on, here's chapter, I think, 13 or 12 or 13. And so between then and the time that we published this book, like the whole world had shifted and it became way, like the whole, for for whatever reason, the entire, it seems like that entire world became focused on, on high, on high scale service software, um, because all of those companies ultimately were interested really in selling to enterprise and all of those enterprises wanted to run service software and they were all obsessed with high scale whether or not they needed, um, and so that was that was really where it came back around to. And was, so we got a new version of of uh, well, Swarm matured into something that was actually baked into Docker. Um, Kubernetes matured and had really taken off, um, and uh, and like there we, had, we had got some like cloud, some actual like cloud specific tools and, and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but that was the biggest change. For the most part, the material in the first edition was really, w- held up really well. There was a few things that needed to be cleaned up, um, a few minor things that needed to be added, definitely some errata to take care of. Um, but for the most part, it worked out really well. I think we only ended up rewriting one or two chapters that really, that, that were they ended up, they were just hard for people to, to read. Um, and so we tried to clean up that material as best we can and, and maybe, pivot on, on the way that we were explaining some of the concepts. Um, and then like the last third of the book, we just ripped out and replaced with something that was new. It was that uh, we, you know, chapter 11 is all about service software. Um, we removed the chapter about running Docker registries and kind of, we, I think we added, we added a chapter on like um, actually, like publishing pipelines and, and, and integrating that stuff with your CI/CD. Um, but and we, and we focused on Docker Swarm partially because it was built in. Anybody that was using Docker has it. Um, but also because it was a very like compared to Kubernetes, it's a very straightforward platform to understand. And besides, most of the concept like it, really, we're using Docker in Docker in action to teach concepts, right? Because if you understand roughly what it's doing, you learn a lot about the system plus you get to be much more productive in what you're doing. And so we we Docker Swarm is is a is a completely appropriate um tool suite for for teaching those for teaching those things. Um and it's running everywhere where where Docker is anyway. So um we didn't have to worry about any kind of crazy we we were very picky in our in our picking third party dependencies. So uh I can't imagine having written a book about Kubernetes. Um I I mean every every edition would be a complete rewrite with the amount of change that's happened to that ecosystem. So very very pleased with our decision not
0: to include that. Um actually on the subject of Kubernetes, is that is it's is the fact that it changes so much a drawback in your opinion? Um no, I I
1: have a, a really interesting relationship with Kubernetes in that I think fundamentally it's it's fine for what it is. Um, I think from a software architecture perspective, they made some very interesting choices early on that were honestly like really awesome, but it looks just like any other piece of service software when you actually look at it. Um, But the problem that I have with Kubernetes isn't so much from a user's perspective. I think from a developer's perspective, it's it's fine. Like it, it might be a little bit verbose in places, but because it can do a lot. And I think that's really good. It's a very good general platform from a systems operator perspective. I would never take that job in a million years. Like the, the number of failure modes, like the number of ways that that system can fail is, is really amazing. Um, and it's just a lot of work and not something that I think 90% of people or you know, 90% of people who could do it would actually want to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. It does a good job. Um, I don't, I mean, I just use, I have Kubernetes running locally, but only because Docker ships with it now. So
0: thanks very Um, much. Thanks very much for sharing that opinion. really appreciate that. Um, uh, Moving on, just to the last part of the interview, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your experience as a as an author of of books. Sure. Um, uh, and so you wrote you wrote your first book. I mean, you had you had a, you had a development editor and, and a team because you were working with Manning. Um, but then uh, for the second edition, you worked with a co author. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? How did you guys manage that? Um.
1: Well, it was interesting because we were coming from two di- two very different levels of experience at that point. Um, Stephen's great author. he had never written a book before. Right. And I had written a book and learned a lot about writing books in that time. Um, and so the deal I cut was like, look, I don't really actually have time to do this. So why don't you champion the new content or most of the new content and I'll work on cleanup stuff. I, I did write one or two new chapters. Um, or, or one replacement chapter. And then I I rewrote, I think two chapters, but, um, and so like it was a nice, clear delineation of who was responsible for what. Um, but we, we, I mean, we bounced ideas off each other frequently. We had regular, you know, conversations and we handed each other uh, iterations for feedback. And so, you know, I read what he wrote and gave him feedback, and he read what I wrote and gave me feedback, just like we would with working with a development editor um, or a copy editor. Um, I did, I worked really hard to try to manage his expectations better than mine were. Um, I, I can be a bit of a perfectionist. And so like, like there was a lot, there was a lot of parts of like working with copy editors or working with technical, technical editors. that like, especially early when I was in my first edition, like just really rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I went into it with an open mind, but like, like chapter one where I'm getting, you know, a, a, a very strongly opinionated and conflicting feedback from every person I'm getting about the first paragraph, right? Like at a certain point, I'm just going to go, okay, well, this is the paragraph, I'm not interested in your feedback anymore. Um, but I had to learn that, right. Or I had to learn that some, that that not all feedback you get from a technical editor is particularly useful, right? A lot of times they just kind of want to share in their experience and they will give feedback. That's like, this isn't the way we do it where I work. I'm like, well, I'm really not particularly interested in that. Um, and so like it's, it's really, it's, big exercise in managing your own expectations for what kind of feedback you'll receive and really a good exercise in, in learning how to ask for feedback and constrain the feedback. If you say, what do you think? Someone's going to say, I like it, which is just garbage feedback, right? Like I I get nothing from that. But if I say, I need to understand like how many times did you have to reread these three paragraphs before you could understand the thing or maybe like ask them like what did you take away from this paragraph or can you explain something that happened in, you know, in the in the in this section um, and be specific the other thing that I tried to manage these expectations were, around were kind of like the whole process overall um, and what what level of uh, like what to expect during the copy editing um, what to expect during typesetting, um, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, and it was really fun. Like, I mean, he, he experienced a lot of the same frustrations that I did, even though he had forewarning. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing that. I think that's just an excellent story, uh, for people to hear, especially if you're going to be working with other people and particularly have you're working with a, with a, you know, publishing company and they're going to assign editors to you, how you interact with them is, um, you know, can be very challenging in a number of different ways. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was good to learn. I, I, I,
1: I'm glad that I did it. Um, I think it really kind of informed a lot about like the process of, of building and marketing a book. Um, I'm pretty confident that I understand it well enough that I could assemble the the team and and establish the cadence and, and the communication touch points in order to do it myself. Like I could probably self publish now and and be very comfortable with it. I know a lot of copy copywriters, copy editors and people in that space who I'm sure that I could pull in to, you know, get feedback um, when I needed it. Um, but I'm glad
0: that we, that we did it. So. And, uh, if when, there's a version of this question that I asked to, to lean pub authors, uh, if I'm interviewing them for this podcast, which is, you know, if there's one thing we could fix for you, or one thing we could build for you, what would you ask us to do? Um, and so, it, with respect to the publishing process generally, and your experience of it, if there was one thing that you could fix, or one kind of, you know, world peace button you could click.
1: Uh... You know, I'm, I'm just like, if I find myself imagining the responses that you get, um, I think... I never care about tooling. Um, I think that's probably some nice low-hanging fruit for people to talk about. People might be like, oh, I wish we could wrote our book in Markdown and put it in GitHub or something like that. Or, you know, I wish we were just, can't I just use Google Docs for everything? Or but like there's so many opinions in that in that world on like what the right public like you know development tooling looks like that I, I really don't care. Like I'm pretty flexible in that regard. And so I think when we were doing it, they were just working on some of their, their more forward leaning tech, um, at Manning. But I mean, I, I wrote it in Word using their Word templates and which were very rough. And I was working on Word in a Mac. So like half the things in the template weren't portable and there was version conflicts, like everything in Microsoft. And so it was just like all sorts of weird stuff. rather than like investing in fixing it because this is not something that I need to do at scale. I need to write one book. Can I just learn how to work these garbage templates uh, or these buggy templates long enough to get through this book? And I did. And it was great. And, you know, I didn't, didn't worry about solving the the deeper problem or or anything like that. Um, So, you know, I'm pretty tolerant of that. I think that there's one thing that I would fix um, or invest in it's, I, I don't know that it's a good idea. I just really like helping people understand and, and level their expectations for what they're doing, what to expect out of it, and what, you know, really have them help them understand for themselves why they're doing it. I was doing it because I knew it was going to be hard. And it was a rare opportunity. and And I knew that I would learn a lot. And I did all of those things. I would not have done it Um, I, you know, and, and I was pretty realistic about my, with with myself about like what kind of like monetary compensation to expect, or I was realistic with myself in like what I knew about publishing and writing a book beforehand, which was almost nothing. Um, but I can imagine a lot of people maybe not going into it with the same kind of mental readiness. Um, so onboarding experience I think is probably pretty good. Um if there's publishers out there who are having a hard time with authors not finishing their work, um then that's probably your problem. Like they're probably in it for the wrong reasons getting frustrated and and bailing. Um so
0: That'd be it. Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing that. That's very insightful, I think. Um, uh, and it is something that anyone who, in any long-term project, but, but you know, a book is a particular kind of long-term project and really one ought to think hard about what one's in it for Yeah. getting going. And it's, it's not just, not just because you don't want to sort of like have a concept of wasting your time. It's just that like you, if you have an idea of what you're going in it for, when you encounter setbacks and stuff like that, you have a context to put them in. Uh, and that can be really helpful for getting to completion. Uh, well, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for doing this interview and taking this time and for being willing to gainly cover so much ground. We, we talked about Amazon and coffee shops and things <laughs> high and low. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, uh, and thanks for your insights about writing and, and publishing as well. I really appreciated that.
1: No, I th- and thanks for having me. It was a joy. And uh, let me know if you ever want to talk again. Okay, thanks very much.